Church, do you feel like you've been led to a place of worship the Lord? Amen. In the spring of 2001, I was offered a teaching position at Moody Bible Institute in their graduate school. Now, they offered me this position to mainly teach Old Testament classes, not exclusively. They also had me teaching the book of Hebrews, and I kept trying to explain to them, Hebrews isn't in the Old Testament, but they said, there's a lot of Old Testament allusions, go with it, go with it. And that's how I found myself in the second Tuesday of September in downtown Chicago, teaching Old Testament literature and themes. Shortly after the class opened, about eight o'clock, Barb Palmiter, our administrative assistant, came to the door of my classroom. And she said, Prof, we, we need to pray. There's been a terrible accident in New York City. An airplane has hit the World Trade Center North Towers, and we need to pray. And even if she shared this and I got ready to pray, a student in the second row stood up. His name was Robin. He was from New York City. He said, Prof, I gotta go call my mom. She's an ER room nurse at the hospital that's closest to the World Trade Center. And at that time, we didn't know that this was going to be the first salvo of a series of four coordinated attacks by 19 individuals, members of Al-Qaeda, who would then commandeer four planes and crash them. At that time, the attack of the attack, 2,977 individuals lost their life, and another 25,000 were injured, and it caused at least $10 billion of destruction as the 210-story towers collapsed, and then they collapsed the whole World Trade Center complex in fire. Do you remember that? Do you remember that? A sobering moment. And yet one of the things that I still remember to this day is that leadership is forged on the anvil of crisis. Leadership is forged on the anvil of crisis. And in that crisis moment, even as we realized more and more that the world was going to be changing all around us, our president at that time, Dr. Joe Stoll, brought us all in together, the students, faculty, the staff, we all came together and proceeded to focus our attention and our affection and our vision on the Lord and his glory. Specifically, he took us to Psalm 2 and he read these words, why are the nations in an uproar and why do the peoples devise a vain thing? The king of the earth's they take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed one. But God, he who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord scoffs them. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the son that he not become angry and then you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. At a time of great confusion and heartache and uncertainty, Dr. Stoll did what a godly man does. 
He focused our attention on the Lord and his sovereignty in the midst of terrible circumstances. Today, I want to take us to a, a place, a visit a site in Israel. I want us to consider the last of the birth narratives, and then I want us to focus in on two kings, two kings, one the king by might, and the other the king by right. Now, and even as we go to focus on these two kings, I need to take you to this place. This is the Herodium. It's six miles south and a little bit east of Jerusalem. This was Herod's palace mausoleum. And for about 15 years, I would come to this place and I would say that the traitor historian Josephus said that Herod the Great was buried here, but we're not sure where. And for 2,000 years, we didn't know where it was. Then on May 7th, 2007, archaeologists from the Hebrew University came and they found this and started excavating a stairway up into the Herodian and then a tomb complex, a massive mausoleum for the burial of King Herod. And it's from this place that we can get a vision of a front row seat to what we're, the story we're gonna be considering. By the way, archeologists have suggested this is what it would look like, the mausoleum there, halfway up the hill on the left, the staircase going up into his palace complex. It was spectacular. It was spectacular, and they're still doing excavations on it. But if you would like to see this in person, <laughs> if you would like to see this in person, on June 13th, through the 24th in 2021, that's next June, uh, we will be taking a trip to Israel. Now, Lord willing, this will be about my 35th or 36th time. My wife and I disagree on that number. She's right. So, but we would love you to go. There's flyers out in the foyer, both here and at Stone Oak. And we'd love to have you consider going. Start saving your shekels now. But for 12 years, I'd come to this place and I'd say, somewhere, somewhere around here, Herod the Great is buried. And yet, it's not just the tomb complex. From the top, you can look out into the Judean wilderness. You can even see all the way down to the Dead Sea, just 13 miles away, the lowest place on the face of the earth. You can see where the tillable, arable land ends. But this isn't a view we focus in on. We focus in on this one. This is looking at Bethlehem off to our left and then to the right, Jerusalem. Separated by only about six miles, but separated by a world of difference. And it's here where we can begin to finally understand a story. Um, as you're turning with me in, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter two, a little bit of background on the birth narratives, the birth stories of Jesus Christ. There are approximately 7,000 verses, 7,900 verses in the New Testament. And less than 1% of those verses deal with the birth narratives. Actually, what's amazing is probably nine-tenths of our Lord and Savior's life, we know nothing about just a few select stories and then a focus on his years, his three years of ministry and then his death on Calvary's cross. 
That's the focus. But the 1% of the birth narratives are important, and they teach us much. Um, first, one of the things I want you to realize, and over the last few weeks you would, you've heard this, the fingerprints of angels were all over the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it started even before the, the angels went and spoke to Mary. Before that, there was a man named Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, and he was told that he would have a unique son who would turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. He would be the forerunner of Messiah. We also read of the story of Mary. She's told by the angels, you're a favored one. The Lord is with you. Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and you will bear a son and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Not only there, two weeks ago, Jason talk, took us and told about the angels coming to the shepherds. Do you remember that? Just ordinary guys doing their job. They're going to be the ones to first hear and first visit the Lord Jesus Christ. Just ordinary guys. But now, as we go to Matthew chapter two, it's two or three weeks later Enough time to, for Jesus to have, have been circumcised on the eighth day and then for them, Mary and Joseph, to take him to Jerusalem and present him to the Lord. Um, at, least, at least two or three weeks. And as he goes up to Jerusalem, there's another individual we're introduced to. It's Simeon who said, now, Lord, you are releasing me, your bondservant, to depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. And this leads us to Matthew chapter two, the visit of the Magi. Interesting, Magi, um, Actually, the, the Greek word magoi, it, it, it um, has a lot of connotations in it. Some would say these are astronomers or astrologers, or the King James Version translates this, wise men. And these wise men come from a distance. If they came from ancient Babylon area, which is what tradition says, they would have traveled over a thousand miles on the trade routes to get to bring their worship and their gifts to the Lord. And these magi, as they come, they have a, a message that they're getting ready to do. They're going to be um, telling um, the king of Israel, Herod the Great, that there's been the birth of another king. Do you remember that? Follow along with me in Matthew chapter 2 as I read just the first 16 verses. And as we look at the difference between the king by might and the king by right. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, there's king one, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? King two. For we saw his star in the east and we've come to worship him. Then Herod the king heard this. He was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes and the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. 
And they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judah, for this is what has been written by the prophet Micah. You, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means the least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and he determined from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and he said, go and search for this child. And when you found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way. And the star which they had seen in the east, interestingly enough, now they'll see it in the south as they travel to Bethlehem. The star that they had seen in the east went before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary. And they fell to the ground and they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures. They presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. But Matthew wants us to understand a little bit of the difference between these kings. And so he includes this story. So Joseph got up, Joseph got up, and and behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and he took the child and his mother while it was still night and they left for Egypt. And in my mind's eye, I can almost see from that Herodian a, a little cloud of dust going south out of Bethlehem while at the same time their hoofbeats of horses are coming out from Jerusalem on the way to come down and do their evil deed. Then... When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and he sent and he slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in its vicinity from two years old and under according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Now we're going to depart from Matthew, we're going to touch back here, but I would like us to consider today a story of two kings. One, the king by might and Those verses in Matthew, we just read about that. Herod the Great, he ruled with power. He ruled with fear. He killed his favorite wife and his favorite brother-in-law and his favorite son. And his terror was amazing. This This guy, though he was one of the greatest builders of the ancient world, he was also unbelievably wicked. And this... In this way, we're going to see that not only is the king by right, but there's a king who binds and there's a king who frees. I'll be reading and summarizing some passages from Josephus, that Jewish historian who the Jews consider a traitor, and summarizing some as you see the king who binds. Herod the Great, Herod the Great bound people up with fear and death. But Herod subdued the caves and the robbers that were in them. He left there a part of his army, as many as he thought sufficient to prevent any sedation. It goes on that there's these caves there in Mount Arbel by the Sea of Galilee. And these robbers are living up in the caves. They're letting ladders down. They're coming down and they're robbing from, from pilgrims that are on the international highway below them. And Herod 
made his mark with Rome by building contrivances, they, Josephus calls them, that they would lower these crates down from on top, down five and 600 feet to these caves. And there they would throw in oil and straw and they would burn these robbers out. This was a man who bound people up with fear. And if Josephus goes on to say, and when Herod traveled, he had over 2,000 soldiers as his personal bodyguard. 2,000. That's the king who binds, but there's a king who frees. And by the way, this is so important for you and I to grasp the freedom of the king by right. Romans 8 one says this, therefore there, is there now, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. This was the first passage I was instructed that I would memorize by my Bible study leader at Campus Crusade for Christ, now called Crew at Penn State. And the reason he wanted me to memorize this, because even just a few weeks earlier, I'd come to faith in Christ. And I love the forgiveness that I read about. And I love the cleansing. Do you? I love that. But I had a struggle because, you see, I struggled to forgive myself. I still carried around a lot of condemnation. Because my junior and senior years in high school I was a mess, and I committed a number of sins. As a matter of fact, do you realize that in the bottom of the Capitol building in Washington, D.C., there's a holding cell? And that holding cell is used to scare the snot out of 17-year-old boys (laughs) who foolishly made a comment in the sight of uh, some of the police officers. I know that for a fact. (laughs) But I struggled to forgive myself. And my Bible study leader, Greg, said, well, you have to latch on to the fact that in Christ you are set free. You're set free from condemnation. You're set free from just continuing to bring up those old sins again and again and again. That when the sun sets you free, you are Free indeed. Uh, there's also a king of luxury and a king of poverty. Um, even as you, we talk about the luxury, it, his palaces, Josephus goes on for pages and writes about the palaces. But it says this, he transmitted into eternity his family and friends. He did not neglect a memorial for himself, but he built a fortress upon a mountain towards Araba and named it for himself the Herodian. That's the place we visited earlier, the place you can visit with me in two years. He also bestowed much curious art upon it with great ambition. He built round towers all about the top, and he filled the remaining space with the most costly palaces round about, insomuch that not only the site of the inner apartments was splendid, but great wealth was laid out on the outward walls. Herod the Great did everything big. You can go to his various palaces, one in Jericho, one in Caesarea. You can go to his various palaces and always you'll find a few of the same things. One is the luxury, the luxury of Roman baths. 
with their various places and all of it done with the most exquisite art around. You see, he also always has a pool, even down in Mitsada, there's a pool there in the middle of the desert. And as a matter of fact, that earlier photo I showed you, there's a pool right down at the bottom of the Herodian, bigger than two Olympic-sized swimming pools with an island bar in the center. What an amazing sight. Herod the Great was a king of luxury. But there's another king, a, a king of poverty. And reading from Luke chapter two, and when the days for the purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. That admonition comes from Leviticus chapter 12. And there it says, here's the normal offering, but if you're really poor, if you're really poor, you can just give these couple of little birds. They're, they're very cheap. And remember, this is before the wise men have come there and given their gifts and the gold. Mary and Joseph have next to nothing. Mary and Joseph couldn't even afford to stay in a hotel if they wanted to. But they had replaced in a stable among the animals and the dung. There's a king of luxury and there's a king of poverty. But in addition to that, there's a king of war and there's a king of peace. And even with this, I want to take you to, it's though it's a grainy photo, you need to go to this place. This is Matsada or the stronghold. This is down in the Judean desert wilderness. It's a thousand feet above this, the Dead Sea. And this is where Herod the Great built his doomsday fortress. And as you go there, you realize, Josephus says there's only two ways to get up. The one is in the front and it's called the snake path that leads down to the Dead Sea. And the other is behind it, but it's well fortified and guarded. And yet surrounding this whole area are thousand foot cliffs and it is very dangerous. And here, Herod built his doomsday fortress because he was a king of war and he was used to and knew that at any moment there could be conflict, conflict with the Jews, conflict with some of his surrounding rulers. And so he built these palaces of war. But there's also, there's also, let me go back the king of peace. And there in Isaiah chapter nine, we hear about the king of peace being born. And this is really interesting. This is one of those passages that good Jewish folks don't wanna hear. Listen as I read Isaiah nine, six and seven. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called and here are the throne names of this son, this child. Wonderful counselor, God almighty, eternal father, and prince of peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. 
And in Judaism, this passage is so confusing because it's saying there's going to be a son born, but he will be God Almighty, the eternal Father, and the Prince of Peace. And all of this is a wonderful story of the counselor that will come and that will bring peace. You know, it, peace is, a, it is an interesting concept. And as I shared earlier, that peace between us and others, but then the peace within ourselves. As you grow with Jesus Christ, you should experience more of both of those, more peace with others and more peace even into yourself. But there's another king who built a temple with his hands, but there's a temple that is built without hands. Um, Josephus, in all his works, he told us that the most spectacular place that Herod the Great built, though Caesarea is amazing, and though, though this fortress of Masada is amazing, the place where he spent most of his time and most of his effort was here. This is a drawing by Lean Rithmeyer and uh, studied archaeology with him a long time ago. And here he's trying to display the Temple Mount area at the time that Christ lived. It was spectacular. Herod the Great expanded and built the southern portico called the Portico of Solomon. And that's where you would trade and, and you would bring your offerings and you had to trade your regular money into temple shekels. It's also where they would examine the animals and if they didn't like yours, they'd say, oh, we have one for sale, but it's gonna cost you. And remember, it's there where Jesus goes in two different times and he says, you've turned my father's house, a place of prayer into a den of thieves. You're robbing these people. You're robbing these people, and it's wrong. This Temple Mount area built by Herod the Great, really for a period of time that is um, um, quite a long time, this um, took over 40 years to build, and Herod the Great, even as he was building it, said, this is where I'm gonna show my largest building project I'll ever do. So there's a temple built with hands, Herod the Great, his expansion of Ezra and Nehemiah's temple area. But there's another temple not built with hands. And this is out of John chapter two. Um, Jesus said to them, if you destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. And the Jews then said it took 46 years to build the temple and you'll raise it up in three days. But Jesus wasn't speaking about this temple. He was speaking about this temple this place of residence of the Spirit of God. For it says, it says, he was there to serve the living God. And by the way, in the midst of this, um, the book of Hebrews, remember I told you that I taught mostly Old Testament, but they also had me teach the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews has something interesting to say about this temple built not with hands. It says this, in Hebrews chapter nine, but when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption 
For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkle those who have been defiled and sanctify them for cleansing in the flesh, how much more will the blood of Jesus, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will that cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Do you see the great exchange? The great exchange is spoken of here. From dead works, trying to be good enough to get God's approval, from dead works to life, a life built in the redeeming blood of Jesus Christ, experienced as God's free gift through personal faith in Christ's accomplished work on Calvary's cross. Well, not only this, there's a king who took and the king who gave. The king who took, that's Josephus records again, that when he died, he was in Jericho and he was in a melancholy state of body, almost threatening him with persistent death. And he proceeded to attempt a horrid wickedness. And he got together the most illustrious men of the whole Jewish nation out of every village. Can you imagine that? Men from every village, the leaders of those villages. And then he placed them in a place called the Hippodrome and shut them in. Then he made this speech. Listen to this. I know well enough that the Jews will keep a festival upon my death. However, it is in my power to be mourned for on other accounts and to have a splendid funeral, if you will but be subservient to my commands. Do you take care to send soldiers to encompass these men now in custody? And when I die, slay them immediately. And then all Judea, every family will weep at it. Herod took and took and took. He was ready to take that life. His son, with wisdom, said, no, we're not going to kill these thousands of the leading men. Well, there'll be a riot. But Herod was willing to do that. He took and he took and he took again. But there's also a king who gave. I love how Isaiah in chapter 53 records these wonderful words. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. And remember this. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before his shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living for the transgressions of my people, to whom the stroke was due. There's a king who gave and gave, and gave, and died for you and for me. But even in death, we see a contrast between the two kings. The one is the king has a burial 
a, a king's burial for a criminal, Herod the Great, and the other is a criminal's burial for the king, Lord Jesus. Josephus records again that the funeral procession was astounding. Over 5,000 soldiers and all of his servants, there was a gold buyer, a, 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 um, a long bed-like structure that was made out of gold, surrounding by jewels, and they, they walked from Jericho up to the Herodian, that place we saw earlier. It was spectacular. It was the funeral for a king. And all the folks that saw it said, we've never seen a funeral like this before. That's the funeral for a criminal with all his power and all his wealth and all his might. But there's also not only a king's burial for a criminal, a criminal's treatment of our king. Luke records this in chapter 23. Two others who were criminals were being led away and put to death with him. And when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. But Jesus was saying, in the Greek, saying repeatedly, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And then the soldiers cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on. Even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, if he is the chosen one. The soldiers were also mocking him, coming to him and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are king of the Jews, save yourself. One of the criminals who was hanged there, was hurling abuse at him, saying, you are not the Christ. If you are, save yourself and us. But the other criminal, do you remember that one? The other criminal rebuked him and said, do you not even fear God since you were under the same sentence of condemnation? We indeed suffering justly, for we received what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Nothing. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And one of the most wonderful phrases that the Lord utters, he says, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Are you confident you could say that right now? That if you were to die today, you would be with the Lord in paradise. Have you placed your personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I find it interesting that in the midst of this, there's a question that I have as we start our new year. There's always a contest for our attention and our affection, for our love. There's always a contest. And it could be skewed one side or the other. On the one side, we have wealth and fame and power we have sexuality, we have all these things, we have entertainment, all of that vies for our attention. And then there's Jesus, who the word of God says he deserves our first loyalty. He deserves our attention. He deserves our affection. And this year I would ask you what I ask of myself. Lord, would this year be a year that I follow you more closely, that I love you more dearly, and that I would follow you every day?
Leadership is formed on the anvil of crisis, and Jesus' birth narratives show us that God was forging the greatest leader ever. How closely will you follow him? Would you pray with me? Father God, even as we head into our time of communion, we're reminded that there's um, always a battle for our affections, our attention, our loyalty, our love. And Father God, I ask that in your kindness, you would help us this year to more closely follow the King by right. Lord, even as we come to this time, we're reminded by the Apostle Paul, we're told a man must examine himself and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And so Father, we stop and we consider and we examine ourselves and we say, Father God, do the work in our hearts that you know needs to be done. For you alone, O Lord God Almighty, and you offered your body and your blood on Calvary's cross for us. Thank you. In Christ's name, amen. In 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul records these words. For I received from the Lord, which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and we had, had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you serve us, please? In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And won't that be a glorious day?